This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we'll talk about Trump's rushing to develop a vaccine and declare victory over COVID-19 just before the November election, whether or not the current research, dubbed Operation Warp Speed, has succeeded. Greg Gonsalves will explain the challenges to the researchers and the dangers posed by Trump, an ineffective vaccine that will create more resistance and skepticism about future vaccines. Greg is co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. And later in the show, Ella Taylor will talk about the new film, Boys State. It's about 1,100 teenage boys in Texas brought together by the American Legion to organize a state government. No, it's not a horror movie. It's a documentary. Also, a film by Joseph Losey, perhaps the only blacklisted director for whom the Hollywood blacklist was the best thing that ever happened to his career. And finally, we'll have your Minnesota moment, Ilhan Omar's victory over a well-funded mainstream opponent. First up, Naomi Klein on the pandemic shock and the Black Lives Matter protests. Naomi is the inaugural Gloria Steinem Professor of Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University and a senior correspondent at The Intercept. Of course, she's the best-selling author most recently of On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Her other books include This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, and No Logo. She spoke recently in an online conversation for the nation with Katrina Vandenhuvel, the magazine's publisher and editorial director. Katrina asked Naomi why she thought the current movement for black lives had such unprecedented support from white people. I'm not sure I do totally understand it, but I do think that there is something around a kind of a softening that the pandemic created. Even just a slowing down that is happening because our economy has been forced to slow down. And I think there is something in just the speed of capitalism that prevents solidarity and that acts to sever or blind us to the reality of interconnection and interdependence. And COVID, even though we are not all impacted by it equally by any means, and and yes, every disaster does discriminate and heighten pre-existing inequalities. It isn't a great equalizer. It isn't a great leveler. I think we understand this. It is true that an invisible virus that is highly communicable through breath and touch forces us to confront the reality that we are in a biological web. And that, that, that manifested in, a, in an appreciation for, for workers who are systematically devalued in our economy, for people who are systematically discarded and devalued. So we're having to think about people in meat processing plants, and we're having to think about people in Amazon warehouses. And these are overwhelmingly people of color, overwhelmingly black and brown people. You know, these are the people who are caring for our loved ones in their last dying moments. And so I do feel like maybe those interdependencies made visible created a a richer context for solidarity in these uprisings, perhaps. That's just a theory. 
Then Naomi was asked about whether she thought of our current situation as a war against the coronavirus. I actually don't think the pandemic is a war. And I don't think war metaphors work for it. I think the pandemic refuses logics of domination. And that's why, if we look at where the outbreaks are, follow the macho, you know, dominance-obsessed men the world over. And, and we see, you know, who, 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 who's tried to bully this thing and, and treat it like an enemy? And who's, who, who, who's in isolation right now? Jair Bolsonaro getting attacked by birds which is an incredible metaphor in uh. <laughs> Let us recall that the birds like Bernie, but they don't seem to like Jair Bolsonaro. But yeah, so Brazil uh, with, under Jair Bolsonaro, obviously the United States under Donald Trump, India under Modi, Russia, Israel, the Philippines, and, and, and the countries that are dealing with it best are some of the countries that are led women, not just women, feminists. <laughs> women with a, you know, a, a, a non-dominance-based leadership style, open to interconnection. And, and it isn't you know, the apps that are doing it for them. It's the infrastructure of care. A listener wanted to know who Naomi thought Joe Biden should pick to be his vice presidential candidate. Do you mind if I don't play this game? All I, all I can say is that we need somebody very, very, very strong who can actually dismantle the neoliberal project. I don't think we're gonna get a socialist as treasury secretary, but I do think that if we want anything remotely resembling a Green New Deal, which harkens back to the scale of change that we had during the original New Deal, but has reparations built into it, including reparations for the original New Deal, which systematically excluded African-American workers, (laughs) Um, discriminated against immigrants, um, discriminated against women, and so on. We need somebody who has that, has that kind of a track record. And so there's not that many people who I think would, would, would fit that, that uh, sort of a definition. Uh, but I think it's a very important one. I would say the most important factor that we should be looking for is somebody who really has the ability to energize uh, the base. Because it's, still, it's really just about winning. And frankly, that's not that powerful a position which is why I'm not that hung up on it beyond that it just be somebody who's better at giving speeches than Joe Biden, who's pretty bad at it. You know, I'm just thinking just in terms of not taking anything for granted and understanding that Trump will, will, will try to steal this thing as well. Another listener asked about the movement on the right to refuse to wear masks and demanding the opening up of businesses and what we should do about that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and, um, that movement is a frightening one and it isn't going away no matter what happens in November. We need to be thinking really strategically and longer term about how we defang that movement and prevent a different candidate from running on the right who is more lucid I mean, I'm chilled to the bone at the idea of a Tucker Carlson run for president. I think that would be very scary. And I think if Biden blows it in his first term, we could be set up for a, a more effective fasc- American fascism and white supremacy. And in thinking about, you know, what is the fuel that is feeding the fires of fascism? How do, how do we dampen it? And I don't mean just like throwing money at it, like trying to deal with this sort of economic precarity. 
I think it, I think it's that his, that hard historical work. And I think that that is something that there was some hope that Obama would do that, right? When he delivered his, what was called the race speech, right? After the Reverend Wright controversies. And he talked, he gave this incredible speech. It's really worth rewatching. And there was some hope that an Obama presidency would would lead a process of, of, of kind of truth and reconciliation. But that didn't happen, right? There was the, there was the race speech and then there was a period of kind of, of, of colorblind policies. I think it is so urgent that we use these, these years that we have now. And I think, I think we've got a couple of years where we are gonna be moving slower as we try to dance with this virus. I think we should, we, I think, we should think of them as the years of repair. I think we should call them that. (laughs) Naomi also talked about what she called the pandemic shock doctrine and something she calls the screen New Deal, the virtual workplace. We have gotten under those of us who who have had the luxury of sheltering in place, and it is a luxury. We have gotten a fast forward version of a vision of the future that 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 was it that, that was coming towards us anyway. When my Rutgers class uh, that I teach went online, we'd had a couple of weeks off and, and there was spring break and we, we came back and we, had, we were all on Zoom and I have a wonderful, wonderful group of students that I've been working with um, in the semester doing a course on social movements and technology. And we did a go around and one of my, just sort of checking in and you know, many of them had been in residence and they were suddenly back in their family homes. And one of my students said something that's really haunted me. She said that what, what she found most disturbing about lockdown is how little she had to change her life. And she realized that she was already so isolated, that she was already doing so much on technology. She said, I just had, it's just actually not that much of a change. And that's what's scary. So we were already headed in this direction, having everything delivered, everything streamed, everything mediated by technology, our relationships replaced by Facebook friends and Twitter followers. And, and it was making us unwell, thinking about the crises before the crisis. There was already an epidemic of depression and loneliness and addiction related to all of this. And yet, you know, if you're Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, chair of Governor Cuomo's task force on reopening New York, what you see in the lockdown, and, and Schmidt has been very open about this, has been a vast experiment in, the, in, in remote learning, as he said. From Schmidt's perspective, he thinks people are seeing that remote learning is in many ways better than in-person learning, and telehealth is in many ways better than in-person health. These are backdoor privatizations. I guess this is the most important thing that I would just stress is that our public schools are being handed over to private tech companies and it's being called remote learning. It is backdoor privatization by way of of tech platform. And we did it because we sort of had no choice and under the sort of fog of kind of panic and sure Google Classroom and Zoom and all of that. But we need to protect our public schools. And if we are going to if we are going to have to be using more technologies in order to work and learn, then we need to treat them as a public commons. We can't do this through backdoor privatization. So this needs to be a broader conversation, which balances the need for 
different kinds of investments. You know, I talked about the importance of access to nature. We should be having a, you know, if, if, if we spent a fraction of the resources and energies that we have spent retraining teachers to be able to run a Zoom classroom or, and a, or a Google classroom, if we did some training and allowed them to, to learn about how to do outdoor education, we could be having our young students in the spring learning outdoors, you know, um, doing math in the forest. I mean, it is possible. Outdoor education is, is incredible. And especially for who have special needs, many of them learn better in nature. But we're not doing that. We're just immediately migrating to a very profitable model for the tech companies. So I don't want to say that, like, I don't want to come across as saying that the technology isn't important. I think it, it is. But I think we're, 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 it's being used to foreclose on a lot of different kinds of solutions that involve investing in people, right? Like there's all of this, I talked earlier about this idea that, it, you know, at the beginning we were told that the, the countries that were doing well with COVID were doing well because they had submitted to these incredibly intrusive surveilling apps. What we know now is that the countries that have done well are ones that that have an actual social infrastructure, a public health care system, which, which doesn't just do contact tracing, but then contacts people and says, what do you need to quarantine? Can we pay for your hotel? Can we, you know, this is why I was mentioning that, you know, in the 1930s, the government was building isolation huts and delivering them to people uh, so that they could quarantine. That's what it means to actually support people to do what is necessary in the face of a pandemic. It requires not just technology, it requires people who are checking in on you and it requires money to help people stay home from work, get food, have childcare, walk the dog. So this is an opportunity to have a community health core, create once again, huge numbers of jobs for young people who are facing unemployment and older people. So. I am worried about these sort of te this techno solutionism. The thing that I find actually hopeful about it is that I don't think people like it very much. And, and because this rolled out faster than was the original plan, I think we're a little bit like the frog in boiling water, which to use a really overused metaphor, that if, they had, if this had rolled out more slowly and incrementally, we would have gotten more used to kind of getting all of our entertainment from our television sets and all of our relationships over Zoom and over, over social media. But because it happened so quickly, I think we're more in touch with the toll it's taking on our mental health. There's more conversations about how important touch is, how important feeding all of our senses is, that we are not just our eyes staring at screens. I think we need to hold on to that because it will evaporate as we get used to it. So I think we need to really stay in touch with the fact that this experiment, and it has been an experiment, the, the results are disturbing. <laughs> um, they're not, it's not what Eric Schmidt thinks it is, that we're all just like, yeah, let's, let's keep homeschooling forever. Let's keep remote learning forever. Um, our kids hate it for the most part. Let's remember that. You can listen to or watch Naomi Klein's full conversation with Katrina Vanden Heuvel at thenation.com backslash events. It's the same old story. 
This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Trump's Operation Warp Speed. It aims to deliver 300 million doses of a safe, effective vaccine for COVID-19 by January, five months from now, which happens to be the month the next presidential term begins. Congress has appropriated $10 billion for Operation Warp Speed. Trump would love to be able to announce an effective vaccine in October, just before the November election. But is that realistic? Is it even possible? For some answers, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He's co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic. And he's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, how long does it usually take to develop a vaccine against a virus? Well, to develop a vaccine, we usually denominate progress in, in years and decades, not months. They take a long time. And in some cases, like for HIV, um, we've yet to see a vaccine after you know, close to 40 years of the pandemic. Well, they say that since COVID-19 is a SARS virus, it's not exactly new. People have been studying the SARS virus since, what, 2002 or something like that. And that makes for optimism in some quarters. Well, so SARS-CoV-2 is not an unknown uh, class of viruses, right? We've had the, the SARS virus that showed up close to 20 years ago. Uh, coronaviruses come and go during our common cold season. Um, and so the biology of coronaviruses is known. We know some about how the immune system reacts to them, but we haven't seen a vaccine against coronaviruses, not the first SARS virus, nor any of the coronaviruses that cause common colds and things we're, we're well aware of. What's uh, hopeful in my mind is that many of the sort of operational, mechanical, commercial aspects of vaccine development are being compressed over the uh, next few months. That includes production of vaccines, which may or may not turn out to, to work. All the sort of scale up of production capacity, clinical trial capacity is being done at quote unquote warp speed. What we can't sort of do is pull a rabbit out of a hat and know in advance whether a vaccine is gonna work or not. We can do our best to design them uh, to elicit the best immune response, but only the, the clinical trials themselves are the, the things that will tell us if they work or not. It's not, we can't sort of design it and predict that it's gonna work without doing the studies themselves. I looked at the White House website. Uh, it says that we are, quote, seeing tremendous progress and that, quote, the president's strategy is achieving incredible results, close quote. They have announced successes, and these involve at least three vaccine candidates that they say preliminary findings are that they do produce an immune response isn't an immune response exactly what we need to stop COVID-19? Immunogenicity, the ability to raise an immune response, is what you want an immune to do. In the history of HIV vaccine trials and vaccine trials in general, there are many vaccines that elicit an antibody response or a T-cell response, but it's not the right kind or the right levels uh, or targeted the right epitopes to protect you against an infection. So yes, it's great that if immunogenic, they raise an antibody response, but sometimes a T-cell response, that there, there's no serious adverse events in the early trials. But again, the antibody response itself, the immune response itself, can't tell you whether it's going to be a predictive one up front. We don't have an idea of what natural immunity to 
SARS-CoV-2 looks like. We don't know about vaccine-induced immunity to SARS-CoV-2 looks like. So yes, immune response, great. Keep going to the phase three studies. We won't know until the phase three studies are done. Uh, and we have uh, thousands of people taking the placebo, no vaccine, uh, or the vaccine itself, whether the, the vaccines work or not. What we'll hope to see is that there are more people who get infected in the placebo arm of these studies than the vaccine arm. And that difference is the difference that matters. Whether it's immunogenic, great, you crossed a, a, a low bar to get onto the next phase three, um, but it's, it's promising in, in that it's not a dud. You get to first base, you haven't had a home run. Sports metaphors, they always work. <laughs> Your new piece for thenation.com includes a memorable image. You write about the political incentive for Trump's people to, quote, torture the data until it confesses and tells them what they want to hear, close quote. Great line, but is that really possible? We're talking here about science. Science has standards of evidence and peer review and replication. We're talking here in at least one of the one of the cases um, about Oxford University. If you say your product cures cancer, you know they can put you in jail for that. Doesn't Trump have to wait for a formal approval process to be completed? Can he announce a successful vaccine? If the FDA hasn't approved one? A couple of things. There's approval, which is usually done by a regulatory advisory body at the FDA. They are in a panel body of statisticians, virologists, immunologists, vaccinologists who look at the data and say to the FDA, yes, this looks like it's a protective vaccine. It should be approved for, for sale and marketing in the U.S. There's also the something called the emergency use authorization, which a drug like hydroxychloroquine was given. Um, it didn't have to have data that it worked. It just had to have a, a reasonable suspicion that it might. And the big worry is that the president may pluck a vaccine with preliminary data and run it through an emergency use authorization and get it out to the American public without knowing if it works or if it's, if it's truly safe. There's a little book called How to Lie with Statistics. Um, and there's always ways of spinning the data to make it look good. There was a study back in the old days of AIDS in which uh, a combination of antiretroviral therapies didn't really work, but the researchers looked for a, a subset of patients for which the drug did work and said, look, it works in this group of people. That's what we call post hoc analyses. Um, one of the most famous sort of um, examples of post hoc analyses was with trial for aspirin for heart disease. And Richard Pito and his colleagues at Oxford did a post hoc analysis based on zodiac signs. You know, if you're a Libra, you were all good in the clinical trial. If you're a Scorpio, you know, it's all bad. By just by chance, you can find a group of people who a vaccine or a drug works for. It's, it's playing fast and loose with statistics. This is why you have these independent advisory bodies that will say, yeah, the analysis is sound. There's no juking the stats, as David Simon used to say on The Wire. This is why it's going to need to be independently reviewed by the book approval process, which many, many scientists are calling for right now. So this emergency use authorization, that's something the president can provide? The commissioner of the FDA can do that. He can do it without impaneling uh, an independent advisory body to advise him on this and to, to give him assurances that the data is worth an emergency use authorization. They did it for hydroxychloroquine with little or no proof that the drug had, was, was beneficial. Yes. I was going to mention that. Hydroxychloroquine, that was the one that Trump was touting, which... Now there's a scientific consensus. Well, actually, there was always a scientific consensus that there was no evidence that it worked against COVID-19. 
yes, several clinical trials came out that showed it didn't work in advanced patients and early patients, nor did it work for post-exposure prophylaxis. You're exposed and you took it and it protected you. Um, and the FDA withdrew the, the EUA. The big problem for us is that in October, the president could tell FDA Commissioner Hahn that I want an emergency use authorization announced on October 31st for, for the Moderna or the Oxford vaccine. And it could turn out to be a dud, but there's going to be very little time to sort of to have any scrutiny if possible in that kind of time frame. And he can he can declare success. This would be a disaster for vaccine development and vaccine deployment. You know, vaccines depend on all of us taking them. It's not like a drug. If you're sick, you take it when you get better. It depends on 60, 70, 80 percent of the population taking it. And if people start to to doubt the, the validity of the results they're hearing, or the veracity of, of public health experts and government leaders, you know, it's going to be hard to get people to take up the vaccine when we do have one that works. So right now, the, I read the threshold for an FDA finding of effectiveness in the, in the stage three trials is 50% of the experimental group either have the in infection prevented or reduced in severity. What do you think of 50% as a, as a threshold? You know, I think most people think of vaccines as 100% effective. No, 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 no. I mean, we all get the flu vaccine, or we all should get the flu vaccine every year, and often they're like 65% effective. Remember, the vaccines are also about herd immunity. So if you can protect a large portion of the population partially, it could be as good as protecting a small portion of the population with a much more efficacious vaccine. So we're not just working on the sort of efficacy of the vaccine itself, but also its coverage. And so if you can reduce infections by 50% in a community and get widespread coverage of the vaccine, you know, you're off to a good start. Is it going to be a replacement for social distancing and hand washing and all the other stuff we love to hate? No, but it gets us, it gets us on the road of having another tool in our toolbox to address the prevention of SARS-CoV-2. And if they do find that one of the current candidates has reached the 50% threshold, that's not the end of the process of developing a vaccine. They'll keep working to get better ones. Yeah, two things. One is they'll work to get better ones. I think some of these vaccines require two jabs, so it's not even a one-shot deal. It's like you need two shots to, to raise the right amount of antibodies. And so they'll continue to look for better vaccine candidates over time. Um, also, once the first one is approved, we have to scale it up. We have to get it out to people. They're making millions and millions of doses of these vaccines. But who's going to get them first? Is it me? Is it you? Are there certain populations, industries, certain vulnerable groups are going to get it first? Who's going to get it around the world? You know, it might be a vaccine that's developed here. It might be a vaccine developed in the UK or in China. Who decides who gets it worldwide and who is going to be last in line? The United States government has been thinking about this, of course, and they've made deals with companies to start manufacturing vaccines before the trials are, are completed. There's a $1.6 billion agreement with Novavax to produce 100 million doses of one candidate and a $2 billion deal, even bigger, with Pfizer and BioNTech for 100 million doses and to supposedly have these ready by January. Is that even possible? So they're going to produce the vaccines. And this is what the a lot of these, these sort of bolus doses of corporate largesse from the government are, are about, about scaling up production um, so that if it works, you don't have to wait three, four, six months to make, you know, 100 million doses or whatever. It's not a, a guarantee that any of these vaccines are going to work, 
reason people to disagree, but it's a way to say, this is how we're going to compress the, the time from the end of a trial, if it breaks positive, to getting, you know, getting it to you and me. Um, the question is, are they betting on the right horses? Are they betting on the right vaccines? Who knows? They're throwing a lot of money around. So the, the first big investment of federal money was to a company called Moderna. Tell us about Moderna and their candidate for a vaccine. They're a new company. They've never really put anything on the market before. They have an mRNA vaccine, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's made from messenger RNA. Um, it's not a sort of viral protein. It's an mRNA that, that is injected and allows the body to, to produce the protein. The big problem is that we've never had an mRNA vaccine that's been approved or, or, or on the market from anybody yet. Um, and so it's a novel technology and a novel approach to vaccine development by a company that has never brought any, a product to market. And so it sort of is a big signal of our desperation at this moment to grasp at straws for anything that might work. And let's talk about the anti-vax movement and the spread of anti-vax sentiment in the United States over over the last decade. What's your understanding of of this movement and its current attitudes towards, towards COVID-19? Well, what's interesting about the anti-vax movement is that it unites left and right. You know, you have wealthy liberals on Vashon Island in Seattle, religious groups in Brooklyn. It's a pretty interesting phenomenon because we're so polarized. But around the anti-vax movement sort of has broad appeal across political lines. We have very low, you know, we've had outbreaks of measles, mumps, and other diseases in the U.S. pre-COVID um, because vaccination rates in many places are below what is needed to achieve herd immunity and protect people. Um, and so uh, vaccine hesitancy or vaccine skepticism has been long with us before, you know, 2020. Um, you know, the flu vaccine we were talking about earlier, not very many, you know, I can't remember, like under 50% of Americans get vaccinated every year for for uh, a respiratory virus that kills uh, tens of thousands of people every year. And so, um, you know, we're working uphill to find a vaccine that works, we're working uphill to find a vaccine that we, a way to get a vaccine out uh, in, in record time. But we're also working against sort of vaccine denialism, which is um, uh, rampant across the country already uh, in a context where um, all the discussions around sort of therapies and vaccines for, for for, for this pathogen have been politicized by the White House. And so, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, I'd be very happy to be wrong. And in January 2021, we have a vaccine that's, that looks like it's really effective and that we scale it up. Um, you know, the big question, will people take it? Um, you know, will the communities most at risk take it uh, and, and, and feel comfortable that uh, the recommendations of the federal government are to be trusted at this time? Um, it's, you know, vaccines have faced this over the past, you know, several decades. There's a lot of opting out in different states about whether you have to vaccinate your kids before they can go to school. Um, it's become a serious public health issue, uh, so much that, you know, different states are now restricting uh, exemptions from sort of compulsory vaccine vaccination before schooling. And so uh, vaccine exception, uh, vaccine skepticism, vaccine denialism is a is a, a, a big, big, big problem in the U.S. And the inevitable question is, what what is to be done to assure that uh, White House claims of a successful vaccine are scientifically valid? Well, what's interesting is that there is a lot of movement in the scientific community now. Um, Natalie Dean had a piece in the New York Times um, 
I think yesterday. She's from University of Florida. She's a biostatistician that works on, on vaccine development. There are many people like Paul Offit at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, who's been a vaccine um, researcher and public health official for a long time. A lot of people are going to be watching this closely. Um, and um, if, for instance, an uh, emergency use authorization is called by the president without going through the uh, the regulatory process at the FDA or the vaccine advisory body at the FDA, I think a lot of people will be calling foul. Um, and that's what we have to look for. You know, the idea is that, you know, we're not just asking for a vaccine to be approved by the book uh, in an expeditious fashion with independent scrutiny, like we see for other vaccines, just because the president's involved. Uh, it's because it's important in instilling confidence in the American public that this, this agent works and that it's worth taking and it's worth vaccinating your children vaccinating your loved ones. And so I think the the scientific community is going to be on high alert this fall, waiting for news uh, about uh, about trial results um, from the companies. We'll, we'll get a, an indication from um, Moderna or Oxford or any of these other companies um, at some point during the fall, whether they've made their endpoints, right? You know, if, if they simply can't accrue enough infections in their studies, you know, we may not have a result until December, January, February. Um, but if we get early signs like we did with remdesivir and dexamethasone, two of the therapeutics for COVID-19, um, there'll be a lot of sort of uh, um, movement in the scientific community to say, how are we going to ensure that this happens in the right way? And it'll be a lot of pressure on the FDA through Congress and others to make this uh, uh, happen in a way that people uh, can instills people confidence. And I think there's a bill, I think there are people on both sides of the aisle, Representative Braun, Senator Murkowski on the, on, on the right, and um, others on the left that have been pushing for uh, uh, standard approval processes uh, for a vaccine for COVID when we see one. And are you confident that, they, that the private profit-making companies that are uh, in the lead on this will share their data uh, fully and honestly with the scientific community? Well, one thing is under the context of an FDA approval, they have to do it, right? If they're not going to get an, if they're going to go through the, the, the advisory body process, they're going to go through the FDA's approval process, they're going to have to submit a, a, an application to the FDA with their entire research dossier. Um, uh, a lot of us have been saying, even if it, even if it goes through an EUA, they need to impanel the, the, the standard VRBAC, as they call it, um, the vaccine research advisory body. Anyway, um, they need to impanel them to look at the data, um, whether they're going to get a full approval or they're going to get an emergency use authorization. It has to, the data has to be given to the FDA. Um, in my nation piece, I said, you know, there's so much writing on this uh, moment that um, one of the sort of movements in the clinical research world right now is to share data uh, uh, with researchers um, for your drugs or your vaccines or other medical products so everybody can evaluate them. It's not like it's put up on the web and like anybody can sort of download the data. There's some gating process, but it allows for independent scrutiny, re-review, re-analyses of the data, uh, uh, which would be nice to see in, in the context of this vaccine, uh, in the development of these vaccines. The first step is, is going through the standard review process with scrutiny of the trial results um, by the experts who matter. And then, you know, I think um, if we got that, the icing on the cake would be a way to put the data in a repository, the individual individual level patient data in a repository so that other statisticians, other vaccine researchers could take a look at it and look for um, uh, 
look for mistakes or look for um, specific side effects that might not have been seen in the initial analysis, um, but that's sort of icing on the cake. First, we want the primary analysis done in a way that meets uh, uh, objective standards of, of biomedical research. Greg Gonsalves, he writes about COVID-19 and the pandemic for thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Jim. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time again for Virus Time TV, Ella Taylor's ideas about what to watch this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. I'm here with my two new kittens. (laughs) Excellent. Well, this week you've been watching a film called Boys State. It's about 1,100 teenage boys in Texas brought together by the American Legion. Is this a horror movie? Not exactly. It's more, uh, I would say, a sign of our times. When I first started watching it, I thought they're also well behaved, so this is getting really boring. But that breaks down pretty quickly, and it turns into <laughs> um, a very intense contest um, in which these boys uh, really select their own state government uh, with the crisis coming when they have to elect an actual governor. Um, I should point out that some alum, as the film does, uh, which is directed by uh, Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain, some alums of Boys State, which is an organization that does this uh, all over the country. We are based in Texas for the duration of this film, which matters. But some famous alumni uh, are Bill Clinton, Rush Limbaugh, (laughs) Dick Cheney and Cory Booker. So it is an attempt to be fairly diverse politically. The idea being that they learn how to function politically in a democracy. And that has many ups and downs in the course of of this movie. They very sensibly, they focus on four rather charismatic boys. They're all about 17, they're high school seniors. And the filmmakers are very quick with the camera to show the telling moment and to uh, outline the extremely um, forceful personalities and very different personalities of these four boys. It begins with very good behavior and a, a fair bit of mugging for the camera, which the filmmakers tolerate, but uh, want to go dig a little deeper and ends up being uh, devolving into the most unscrupulous chicanery and manipulation of democratic process that you can imagine that reflects very much the polarized uh, state of our society at the moment. I was very much reminded of what Churchill may have said, although it's unclear he actually said this, which is that 
parliamentary democracy is an absolutely terrible system and the very best that we have. <laughs> because um, what this is about is really the progressive um, devolution into a manipulation of that very system when winning is the primary motive. So a little bit about the four boys. Um, Robert is a kind of muscled, looks a little bit like a frat boy. He's a Republican with extremely liberal private views on the two main issues at hand, one of which is guns and one of which is abortion. But all of which he's willing to betray in order to try and win. The boys are divided into two parties, federalists and nationalists. Neither of those things mean very much in this context. Ben, uh, who is a double uh, amputee, he suffered from hepatitis at, uh, when he was a baby, and also a very ruthless, extremely right-wing strategist who um, commits a lot of the Gaffs is a very weak word for what he does in the course of this, but also highly intelligent. Rene, um, who is the state party chairman and, and one of the few blacks either in Boys State or in the movie, um, accordingly, who uh, is a wonderful orator who comes in for a great deal of flack, which may or may not be racist in character. The final one is Stephen Gaza, who is an extremely likable young Latino whose mother was undocumented, so he, he knows from troubles and so on, but uh, apparently had a wonderful mother. He's personally extremely popular, a good orator, and uh, really the lone unifying force in all of this. And he becomes elected to his party, and uh, the other party is masterminded by, by Ben. And over time, uh, things really break down. I should add that Boys State in Texas in, in 2017 actually voted to secede from the United States. So, um, you know, and most of these young people are actually quite conservative in their views, but there's a tremendous range. And there's a kind of almost... Um, Lord of the Flies. <laughs> um, I mean, there's no physical violence. And actually, one of the, the pleasures of the movie is that it, it shows them, even as they polarize each other, trying to find a way to come together as well. They co their personalities are very complicated. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, it's, mesmerizing, it's a mesmerizing documentary in many ways. It's also a study in toxic masculinity. <laughs> There's so much backslapping goes on in this movie, which is as a woman, I, I found that I just couldn't relate to. In fact, there, there was a girl's state in preparation until um, COVID hit. And I don't know what will become of that. They're just going to have to wait until this crisis is over, because, of course, you can't make a film of this kind with the pandemic. So a documentary uh, about toxic masculinity in teenage politics in Texas, if we want to get away from the world of documentaries into the world of fiction films, what can you recommend this week? 
Well, get away from is not exactly how I describe <laughs> Mr. Klein, but uh, which is also very dark, but it's an absolutely wonderful Joseph Losey movie from 1976. The Criterion Channel is put together um, a starring Alain Delon series, uh, which is absolutely marvelous. It features other films that this great and problematic actor was in, including uh, René Clément's Purple Noon and three Melville films, including Le Samurai and Le Cercle Rouge and uh, Visconti's Rocco and his brothers. He really is an amazing actor of a certain kind. He's not a guy to disappear into his roles. Alain Delon, whose politics these days are extremely right-wing, he's a friend of the Le Pen family and he campaigned against gay adoption has a kind of beauty that is quite extraordinary um, on camera. Delon projects a kind of chilly implacability, which makes him uh, a great candidate for this role as an art dealer in occupied Paris in 1942, who exploits Jewish art owners who are trying to sell their paintings in order to escape the Nazi occupation. But this is actually a study that Germans rarely appear in this movie, except as uh, street bullies. In fact, this is a film about Vichy collaboration. What happens is it has a very nifty premise, which is that uh, Robert Klein, Mr. Klein of the movie, is mistaken for another Robert Klein who is Jewish. And he is so upset by this that he reports the situation to the local prefecture and finds himself a person of interest in the Vichy-dominated um, police who are uh, rounding up Jews for what will become the most infamous uh, roundup of Jews in a, a Paris stadium. And this is set one day before that happens. And so he's plunged into this Kafkaesque paranoid nightmare where he is Mr. Mr. Klein, from which he learns absolutely nothing. And he gets swept up in, in this roundup of, of Jews and tangled up in the machinery of state. He plays, at the personal level, a man without a soul. Um, he tries to remain above the fray and uses the threat to Jews for his own ends. And so this becomes a study in French indifference. I should add that this was at a time when very few French movies <laughs> acknowledged uh, the Vichy gov government's uh, role in the Nazi occupation. So it was a particular, a particularly brave move for, for Joseph Losey. Joseph Losey is uh, famous for uh, being a communist in the 40s who was driven into exile by the Hollywood blacklist. I looked up his specific story, which is a pretty interesting one. He had gone to the Soviet Union in the 30s. He was a kind of an ordinary, you know, pinko American kid uh, in the Depression era and in World War II. In Hollywood, he joined the Communist Party in 1946. He was a friend and comrade of the big communists like Dalton Trumbo. He was a friend of Bertolt Brecht and of uh, Adrian Scott. And he was working in an Adrian Scott film. And Adrian Scott got subpoenaed by 
HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, Losey organized a protest meeting at the Shrine Auditorium. When Brecht got his subpoena, Joseph Losey went with him to his hearing. And let me just remind our listeners how HUAC worked in its Hollywood hearings. Everybody who got a subpoena got the same question, the most famous question of the 50s. Are you now or you ha have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? The committee already knew the answer. The only people they subpoenaed were communists. So if you were called, you only had three choices. You could refuse to answer on constitutional grounds. The First Amendment guarantees the right of free association. It's none of their business what organizations you may have been part of. But the courts ruled that that was unacceptable and you could be sent to jail for the crime of contempt of Congress. That was called pleading the first. It's what the Hollywood 10 tried and it landed them in federal prison for a year or so. Or you could go the other route, you could answer the question. But then they always asked you a second question. Give us the names of other people who were in the Communist Party with you. And then they would be called, they would be subject to the same uh, treatment. So if you answered the first question but refused to answer the second question, if you said, I'll talk about my own beliefs, but I'm not going to be a rat, a stoolie, a Judas, I'm not going to get my friends in trouble, then you could be sent to jail for the same crime, contempt of Congress. So there was only one acceptable alternative for the courts. You could plead the fifth, take the Fifth Amendment and say that you refuse to answer on the grounds that the answer might incriminate you. And they couldn't send you to jail for that, but for that you would be blacklisted. You would be banned from working in the film industry forever. I mean, it, it came to an end eventually. But And Losey was named by old comrades, two of them, in 1951, and Huack tried to subpoena him, but he, he avoided the subpoena and fled to England. He never appeared before HUAC and spent a long time trying to launch a career in the British film industry, which took many years. But he succeeded, became a you know European auteur. He worked with Harold Pinter. He worked with the French greats, as you've told us. And he's one of the few people about whom you could say that the Hollywood blacklist was the best thing that ever happened to him. Because uh, if he'd stayed in Hollywood, he said at the end of his life, if he'd stayed in Hollywood, if he'd named names, quote, I would have had three Cadillacs, two swimming pools, and millions of dollars, and I'd be dead. Yes, it was terrifying, it was disgusting, but you can get trapped by money and complacency. A good shaking up never did anyone any harm, close quote. Of course, this is like 30 years later. I wonder if you see any traces of either the communist years or the blacklist experience in Mr. Klein. And this was made relatively late in Losey's career. Um, and it's nothing to do with communism as such, but it's certainly to do with uh, collaboration or indifference to authoritarian tyranny. Uh, which is a, you know, it's a path that many directors took from communism. I mean, initially, Losey was quite infatuated with, with Stalin, with uh, later on, you know, much less so. But this is a study in more in people who go along with a tyrannical regime 
and the collaboration of those around them. I will add that it's also um, a beautiful looking film as a piece of sort of Paris noir. It has wonderful shadowy shots. It also features Jeanne Moreau as uh, is somebody who was probably the lover of the real Mr. Klein. Um, and we never find out exactly who shopped this Mr. Klein, but there are very broad hints given in the movie as to how it might be, which I won't tell. We have time for one more quick recommendation. What else have you got for us this week? Well, something very different and very uplifting, um, which is the uh, a Studio Ghibli film. There is a, a Studio Ghibli film fest, which plays on HBO Max. Um, Netflix also has some others of them, their movies, and so does uh, Amazon. But I think for every parent or grandparent should have this the following film definitely in their in their Studio Ghibli collection. And that is the film Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, and I wish to put in a plug for my daughter who watched this film about 75 times, <laughs> as did her mother. And it's a charming animated film about a trainee witch who moves to a different town. And part of her training is uh, how she can earn a living as a delivery service, which she does on a broomstick. It's absolutely delightful. It's often quite tough-minded as a coming-of-age movie because she has to, you know, there's all kinds of hurdles she has to pass and jump. And uh, it really was one of our favorites. And from time to time, I watch it again, because it is, you know, as always with Miyazaki, um, Hayao Miyazaki movies, this one was made in 1989. And as always, at the center is not a a plucky boy, but a plucky girl um, who goes through all kinds of things. So highly, uh, highly recommended. And I'll come to some of the others as they come up. Miyazaki's Kiki's Delivery Service, the Japanese animated film on HBO Max. We've also talked about Boys State, which is on Apple TV, and Joseph Losey's Mr. Klein on the Criterion Channel. Ella, thanks again for your recommendations this week. Thank you, John. It was a a pleasurable distraction from stopping the, the kittens from ruining my curtains. One last thing. Your Minnesota moment, of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul, that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Minnesota's primary was Tuesday, and Ilhan Omar, the first Muslim immigrant woman elected to the House of Representatives two years ago, faced a well-funded challenger, an African-American man with mainstream Democratic politics and a lot of big money behind him. Ilhan Omer won easily 57 to 39 percent. That's an 18-point margin. She lost the middle-class suburbs of Minneapolis, but there aren't many voters in the suburbs compared to the city of Minneapolis. She beat her opponent in the city of Minneapolis almost by 2 to 1. The funding for her opponent came from pro-Israel groups, half a million dollars, and a couple million more from big corporate heads in Minnesota and from some hedge fund billionaires in the East. The Minneapolis Star Tribune also endorsed her opponent. Voters in the district were flooded with glossy mailers for the opponent. Ilhan Omar was endorsed by Nancy Pelosi, Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz, and the state DFL party, the Democratic Party of Minnesota. 
Trump's repeated attacks on Ilhan Omar made her a national hero to liberals. So she'll be back in Washington in January. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.